Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by grace and virtue, by which you have been given, by which you have been, he has given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world through lust. Let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord as we prepare to study his word this morning. Our Father, we're so thankful for all that you've given us and provided for us, the way you've supplied our every spiritual need and all of our physical needs that we have that which we need to accomplish your plan. As we look at this first half of Ephesians, though we have spent over 100 hours going through it, we have just barely scratched the surface. There is so much here, so much implied, so much that is uh, connected together. It is just uh, awe-inspiring as we reflect on what you have given us. Father, now as we overview this, these three chapters, reviewing what we've learned, help us to just consolidate some of this in our thinking, and may we have our thinking rise to exalt and praise you as the Apostle Paul does at the end of chapter 3. And we pray that you would guide and direct our thinking and understanding. In Christ's name, amen. All right, we are going to do a flyover this morning. For those of you who haven't been with us very long, I try to do overviews as well as in-depth analysis. A lot of times we think we understand a passage as we read it. We may understand it to some degree, get the general gist of it as we go through it in English. But what I'm often uh, surprised with and over all these years, I shouldn't be so surprised. But as I am often surprised that when I start breaking down all of the details of the grammar and the word studies, that the text doesn't quite say what you think it says. And that is because of a lot of different factors that go into the production of English translations. And certain passages, certain verses were translated a certain way into English as far back as the mid-1500s, and they have become so well known that if there is a variance from that in a published translation, then people have a tendency to reject it, sometimes for a good reason. When the Revised Standard Version came out in the early 50s, instead of translating uh, Isaiah 7.14 that a virgin would conceive, the liberal slanted translation team translated it, a young maiden will conceive, which is quite a bit different and challenged the virgin birth. And so that created quite a reaction among the 
among the conservatives and for a good 30 or 40 years, no self-respecting biblicist would touch a revised standard version. And that is still generally true. We just have fewer and fewer biblicists today, unfortunately. So I have taken the time to go through a lot here, and what I want to do is just give us that overview, that structure, and go through and hit uh, the high points so that when you find yourself reading through the scriptures, you can uh, you can recover and remember that, oh, yeah, I think this means that, and this doesn't mean what it appears to say, or I can now understand this, which I didn't understand before. And so it helps us put this together. So we're looking at uh, one of the main ideas, if not the main idea of this section is that what is expressed in Ephesians 1.3 are incredible blessings in Christ. These blessings are those things that God has given to us, assets, privileges that were not ever given to any Old Testament believer. They are unique and distinct to this church age, and they are the foundation for our spiritual life. And we live in an era when people go to many churches and they have lots of people there, and they advertise all of these short little topical series that they do, nine ways to improve your marriage, eight ways to get out of debt, all of these different kinds of things that people think are applicational. The Apostle Paul didn't think that way. Neither did any of the other writers of the Bible. You don't find the revelation of God constructed that way. When Paul wants to talk about what we should do, how we should live, which is basically the subject of chapters 4 through 6, what a lot of people will identify as application, He first gives us three intensely detailed chapters explaining just what and how uh, God has given us all of these assets. And so when we come to the beginning of chapter 4, Paul begins by saying, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. That second word, therefore, means in light of what was said before. I'm going to draw these conclusions, and the conclusions that are covered in chapters 4, 5, and 6 are wrapped around the idea of the of, of walking. Walking with the Lord is a metaphor for our spiritual life, for our spiritual growth. And so this sets the tone in the first verse of chapter 4, that we are to walk worthy of the calling. Well, that summarizes just that phrase, the calling with which you were called, is a summary of the first three chapters. That therefore doesn't take us back just to the benediction that comes at the end of chapter 3, nor does it take us back to uh, the prayer near the end of chapter 3. Indeed, it doesn't even take us to chapter 3 or to chapter 2 and 3. That therefore is a conclusion that is drawn from everything he said in the first three chapters. He said a lot. 
What's interesting is every time I read through this, I see things, and I'm not sure whether I taught it that way or not, or, or just exactly what I emphasize, because the more we read the scriptures, the more we see things that were there all the time, but it was, it's been 20 readings, and now we finally see it. That's just the depth of God's word. So at the end of chapter 3, there's this great doxology we covered last time, or benediction. And benediction is a phrase that means uh, a good word. A doxology is a word of prayer. Uh, there's, as I mentioned last time, two different kinds of doxologies. This is one kind. The other is the kind that begins with the phrase blessing, or blessed be, which is what we have in one three. So in 3.20, we read, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. To him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. And that is an echo to what he began with. And turn now with me to the first chapter where in verse 3 Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. Now that every spiritual blessing that Paul talks about there is that which is beyond anything that we could ask or think that he talks about at, at the closing uh, doxology. And by way of understanding the opening, here's a brief outline. Brief outline we, for, the, for the first three chapters, we have the salutation and greeting in verses 1 and 2. Then the first part is Paul's first doxology. That's chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. One sentence in the Greek that uh, always it's a wonderful assignment to give second-year students in Greek to tell them to do a diagram of this sentence in Greek, which presupposes that they have some idea of what a diagram is. And the sad reality today is that's not taught in schools anymore. So you can't really analyze somebody's written thought if you cannot diagram at least in some sense. You may have trouble getting all the little details on all the right little horizontal lines and just how do you bracket this or that, but we have to be able to break down sentences to be able to understand what something means. And otherwise, we don't have a real comprehension of what is said. Then it's followed by Paul's first prayer, which is about the second longest sentence in uh, in the New Testament, in, I mean in Ephesians in, in Greek. And there we learn some key things about what Paul says about prayer and how he prays. The third division shifts more to the central topic, which is this referred to as this mystery, this previously unrevealed truth that now Jew and Gentile are together in one body in Christ. And so the third division is chapter 2, verses, actually that should be 1 through 10, where the topic is God's inclusion of the Gentiles in the same by grace through faith salvation that the Jews who were first saved in Acts, Acts 1 through 10, that they experienced. So Gentiles are included together, and now the Jews and Gentiles together 
are uh, made alive together in Christ. They have been raised together and seated together with Christ. That is our legal position uh, before God. So Jews and Gentiles are included together. And then that lays the foundation for what we just read, what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, that he has now created this new church. Then there's a parenthesis in 3, 1 to 13, where he uh, seems to go off topic, but it is related, and that's where he explains the mission and message that he has as an apostle. And the mission is to proclaim this previously unrevealed truth about the new body of Christ made up of Jew and Gentile together. That leads to Paul's second prayer in Ephesians three fourteen to 19, and then to Paul's second doxology in Ephesians three twenty to 22. So that gives us the broad outline. I will break this down into its components as we go, as we go through this. Here we have in uh, the opening, we have the salutation, we have uh, Paul's first doxology, and here it, the focus is on the roles of the triune God that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing uh, in the heavenlies beyond anything that he has blessed any believer or group with in the past. And so I want to look at the opening here, just checking it, at the salutation briefly. Paul identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now, in the uh, there are liberals who doubt and others that doubt the Pauline authorship of Ephesians. It's the traditional view of the church, the dominant view among conservative biblicists, conservative evangelicals, and that there's no evidence whatsoever that this was not written by by the Apostle Paul. He identifies himself as an apostle, that is one commissioned by Jesus Christ, uh, by the will of God, and it is addressed to the saints, that is the believers who are in Ephesus, which is primarily going to be a, the, the church or different churches that are meeting in Ephesus, home churches, and they are primarily Gentiles, even though there's a Jewish presence there, they are primarily Gentiles, and he says they're faithful in uh, Christ Jesus. Now, one of the things that, that we point out is that in, this is reference to uh, Paul's uh, visit. He spent over two years in, in Ephesus, and so he has a, uh, an intimate knowledge of the church, and he is on good terms with that congregation. He writes this epistle after his third missionary journey, he then when after which he went to um, went to Jerusalem, and there he was got uh, he was arrested. He was taken to Rome, and while he is in prison in Rome, he wrote four prison epistles, and Ephesians is one of those uh, prison epistles. So we have no reason to doubt his authorship or any of the historical information uh, that is given there. So let me just skip ahead a couple of these slides here. We go through the salutation and then Paul's first doxology. This is covered in these verses from 3 uh, through 14. And he begins 
by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Now, if you look at this, he breaks this down to where he talks about the Father's blessing towards us in verses 3 through 6. Then he will talk about the God the Father's blessings for us that come through the Son in verses uh, 8 to 12, and then the Father's blessings to us through the Holy Spirit in verses 13 and 14. And so as we uh, go through this, I'm just going to walk us through some of these verses and the main ideas uh, that are here. The main idea, the main action point, if you want to put it that way, that we uh, get out of these verses is that we too are supposed to be praising God for all of these blessings, all of these things that he has done for us, all of the assets that he has provided for us in our spiritual life, our position in Christ, our identity in Christ. We are to be thankful to God and praise him for those things all the time. That should be regularly a part of our, of our prayer life. And so he begins, and he it's, it's a Trinitarian praise. He talks first about the Father, who is really the center uh, person in all of this, because the Father is doing all of these, but he does talks about what the Father does that's part of his role as the Father, then what the Father does through the Son, what's accomplished through, the, through Christ and the cross, and then what is accomplished uh, through God the Holy Spirit. And so he gets, he starts here in verse three and he tells us that we have every spiritual blessing, not some, not most, not a great number, but every spiritual blessing. God in his omniscience and omnipotence didn't drop some when he gave them to you. We all have this same package and we can't even begin to comprehend a lot that is in that package. And then we look at verse 4, and he says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That tells us that this choice in him, whatever else we can say about that, it occurred in eternity past before God created the heavens and the earth, because God in his omniscience doesn't learn things. There, there never was a time when God didn't know everything he's always known. His knowledge is infinite, and there's no restrictions to it, and so he doesn't learn things. He doesn't forget things. He doesn't say, oh, I think I'm going to... Today I think I'm going to uh, come up with a plan to create angels and then to create human beings. He's always known all of this and all of the possibilities that could incur. I mean, we can't even uh, come to grips with that. But he, this is set forth from eternity past. For all eternity, God has known this. And we looked at the challenging phrase, he chose us in him. Now, the first thing that I, I, I want to point out here is that there's something left out in that phrase, us in him is that he, and it can be understood, and it is understood by one of two ways. There are those who think that it, it, it states, chose us to be in him, and that leads you in the direction of a strong deterministic view of election, that God chooses who will be saved and who will not be saved. 
And this was the view that uh, Augustine brought into the church in the uh, early 5th century or late 4th century because his life overlapped the turn of the century. Augustine brought that in and, of course, uh, leading Reformation uh, Bible teachers like John Calvin and Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli and uh, Heinrich Bullinger all were influenced heavily before they were ever saved by Augustinian theology. The other way to take this is that us in him refers to us who are in him. What I did was I took us through a few examples in the scripture that use this phraseology, us in him, and we determined that it does not ever have the implication of us to be in him, but it always refers to the corporate entity of those who are in him. So when Paul says this, he says he chose us in him. It's a corporate idea, not an individual idea. We looked at the concept for choice in the Bible and did some extensive word studies on that. Those of you who were here remember the doctrine of the magnum bar, which where it talks about, you know, in your, I, I saw this in, in the Hebrew labeling when I was in Israel, that the, the, here we have, uh, it's a chocolate bar. If you don't know what a magnum bar, it's a chocolate ice cream bar, and it's covered with not only chocolate icing, but it has almonds in it. In the Hebrew labeling, it says mebecherim shekerim, which means choice almonds. Now, the difference between choice does not necessarily imply chosen or selected. It emphasizes the quality of something, that you have selected the best almonds uh, for that. And you go back into the Old Testament, there are example after example after example where People are selected because of their qualifications, because they are choice. That this selection process isn't a process that is random or arbitrary, where God's just going, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, I'll pick you. He, the text does not tell us here what those qualifications might be, But everywhere that we find this in the scripture, there is something that qualifies a person for that selection. Those that are chosen to be in the choirs of the temple are chosen not because they can't sing. That's a double negative. They are chosen because they can sing. They have to be able to sing. Uh, they have to be able to harmonize with the with the other members of the choir. So there's a qualification there. But we look at the parable in Matthew 20 about the invitation to the wedding guest, and at the end it's badly translated uh, that uh, many are called but few are chosen, but the, the all are invited by the uh, king who's giving the banquet he does not disinvite anyone. All are invited. The only people making the choice in that parable are those who are invited, and some are saying no. Others are saying yes. And the ones who say yes are given a special clothing to wear at the banquet. And so the issue isn't many are called and few were chosen. It's that few are choice because there's one guy that shows up with the wrong clothing. He doesn't have the righteousness of Christ, it's what it's saying. And so he's kicked out. But the others show up, they have on the right clothing, and they are accepted. They are choice because they have the right qualification. 
And so we looked at that, and that then we went on uh, talking about uh, the next verse, that uh, he chose us in him, and we're in him because we possess his righteousness, that is made that decision, that plan is set up before the uh, foundation of the world. But the thing that we miss is its purpose. We're, he chose us in him for a purpose. And the purpose here isn't to be saved. It's to be holy and blameless. It's really talking, I believe, about either phase two or phase three. That is our spiritual life that we are to grow and mature and be experientially set apart and blameless in our spiritual life. Or it is talking about our future destiny in phase three when we die and we're face to face with the Lord. And then we are without sin. We are saved from the presence of sin. You remember phase one, we're saved from the penalty of sin, the instant we trust in Christ. Phase two, we are being saved from the power of sin as we grow spiritually. And phase three, when we die, we're saved from the presence of sin. And so at that time, so this could be interpreted as phase two or phase three, but it's certainly not talking about phase one. Uh, So it is for that purpose that we are the choice ones in him. In other words, that's the purpose for the body of Christ. That is the purpose for the church. Because as we see, to connect it to to the second chapter, as we see in verse 7 of chapter 2, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus us in him. So we are to be trophies of God's grace that are put on display for the all of eternity so that people can see this evidence of the grace of God. So then we go on and we see that in, um, where are we now? In about verse 5, that this is according to, that he has predestined us. Now, there's another loaded word, and I pointed out that the Greek word used here, prahorizo, is only used five times in the New Testament. And it is rarely, if ever, used in secular Greek, in the Koine Greek. But in two or three clear examples, it has the idea of appointing somebody to some position or marking out the boundaries of something. So, again, it fits that corporate idea that uh, that he uh, appointed us. He, who's us? It's the church. It's looking at the church as a group of people, not as a group of individuals. So it's not talking about he appointed each one of us, but he appointed those who are in Christ. The us has already been established as us in him. So the us in him are appointed uh to uh, adoption as sons by Christ Jesus himself according to the good pleasure of his word. This is the first time we've seen this phrase, but we'll see four different according to phrases. So this is according to God's, the pleasure of God's will. And he says then in the next verse, this is to the praise of the glory of his grace. We're going to have three more mentions of the word praise, verse 6, verse 12, 
and a couple, and one more at the end in verse 14. So there's three mentions of the word praise. So this is to the praise of the glory of his grace in verse 12. It's to the praise of his glory and verse 14 to the praise of his glory. And what that means is we're praising God for all he is and who he is. And the first statement of this, the focal point is on God's grace because he has made us accepted in Christ, not based on any merit on our part, but totally based upon what Christ has done for us. The merit is in Christ. The merit is not in faith. Faith is non-meritorious. It is a, it, we are saved, as we'll see in Ephesians 2.10, we are saved by grace through faith. It's the conduit. It's the pipeline, as it were, by which God's grace flows to us. So we establish faith in Christ, and he saves us. The merit is in Christ. The work is done by Christ on the cross. It is there that he paid the penalty for sin so that when we trust in him, his righteousness is then given to us by God. That's called the imputation of righteousness so that because uh, we possess Christ's righteousness, we're clothed with his righteousness. God looks not at what's underneath the robe where we're still sinners, but he looks at the robe of righteousness we have and declares us justified. In Roman Catholic theology, there's an infusion of grace, which was totally rejected by the Protestant Reformation, because that implies that you're made better. You're not, we're not made better. We still have that nasty sin nature. That's why you have passages like all of Romans 6, where Paul says, quit uh, quit yielding to the sin nature. Quit putting yourselves in bondage to your sin nature, but uh, make yourselves bond slaves to righteousness. Okay, so that is what the Father does, and then we have what happens with the Son, and that starts in verse 7. In Him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. Now, the term blood always is a metaphor for his death, so we can translate that, uh, that it is uh, redemption through his death, the forgiveness of sins. Now, forgiveness of sins is not, is not a synonym for redemption, which is, it looks like it could be an, an, uh, a parenthetical explanation there. Redemption is the payment of, of a price. Christ paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. Forgiveness is the eradication of the debt. The words that are used for forgiveness, both words are also used in banking and describe the eradication of a debt. So here we have the two sides of the same coin, the redemption, the payment of the price. And because the payment is of the price is made, the debt is canceled, it's eradicated. That's Colossians 2, 12 through 14. Then he says that uh, we have forgiveness of sin, and then, and then our second according statement, according to the riches of his grace, the wealth of his grace, which is boundless. It's infinite. 
so that, that, that God's desire is to save us. His desire isn't to give us a, a lot of things to do so that we can uh, check off our little list of good deeds and eventually have uh, a hope that we'll be saved. It is according to his infinite grace that is his undeserved kindness toward us so that Christ has done it all and we simply accept the free gift and we are saved, not because of anything meritorious in us, but it's all in Christ. And so it is according to the riches of his grace and by the riches of his grace, he he made all of this abound to us in wisdom and prudence having made known, and it's because he's already made this known to us, the mystery of his will. And so mystery of his will, mystery always refers to previously unrevealed truth. But now we have this revelation of the gospel that is clear because of the cross. And so that is how he makes wisdom and prudence apply to us is as we accept his will, that is accept the gospel, and then as we study the word, we come to learn his, pleasure, his uh, purposes. So having made known to us the mystery of his will, that is the gospel, according to his good pleasure, so he makes it known to us the way he desires to make it known to us, which is what he purposed in himself according to his plan. And then we see a, 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 a purpose for this stated in verse 10. So we have this purpose. The purpose is that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, that refers to the future thousand-year reign of Christ, that he might gather together in one all things in Christ. That's that unity that we in the church have in Christ. Uh, And so in the millennial kingdom, we will all be, the church will all be unified in Christ. We will be in our resurrection bodies and we will rule and reign uh, with him. And at the same time, it states in verse 11, in him also we have obtained an inheritance. Now, we went through this in detail explaining the uh, uh, the significance of this and how it should be translated. We are not we are his inheritance. Inheritance has the idea of possession. So in him, in Christ, we have also uh, we are God's own possession. That's how that is to be understood. We are God's possession. We're not in, this isn't talking about the inheritance we get. We are God's possession. We are God's inheritance in Christ, uh, having been, uh, having been appointed beforehand. That is the whole church. It's the we who, it's, again, it's this corporate pronoun. Having we are pre-appointed to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, so far, I've talked about these first-person plural pronouns, the we and the us. Where we understand this is in the next two verses. This is so important to understand all of this. The question really in these these other doctrines is, is this we as individuals or we as a corporate group? And Paul is clearly talking about corporate groups. 
As we get into 2 and 3, we see he's talking about this new group, the church. And prior to this, we had one group that were the circumcised, one group that were the Jews. Then you had another group, the uncircumcised, who were the Gentiles. So he's talking about these groups. But here's where we first see who the we describes and who the you describes. In verse 12, he says that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. This is where he is talking about we, the Jews, the Jewish background believers who were the first to be saved, the first to receive these blessings in the church. The church started in A.D. 33, and the church will go on to the rapture. But from Acts chapter 2 until Acts chapter 10, when Peter is appointed by God to take the gospel to the to Cornelius and open the doors of the church to the to the Gentiles, that's the function of the keys of the kingdom. The keys that are given to Peter is he opens the doors to the Jews in chapter two, uh, in chapter uh, seven he opens the doors to the Samaritans, and in chapter 11, ten and eleven he opens the doors to the to the Gentiles. And so you have this period from Acts 2 to Acts 10 where Gentiles are not part of the church. The only Gentiles that are part of the church were proselytes beforehand. So now it is, it's going to go to Gentiles, and this is the first place where it's clearly stated that Gentiles are going to be included in the church. And so the we who first trusted in Christ are the Jewish background believers of Acts 2 through 10, that we should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted. And the you there isn't you Ephesians. It's you Gentiles. That becomes very clear in chapter 2. There's no place where the, the reference of these pronouns changes. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, which is described as the gospel of your salvation. So when they trusted in Christ as their Savior, then they too are, are saved, and they have been brought t- together. He gets to that in the next chapter. And in whom also, also, also meaning like, like we Jews, you Gentiles also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So there's two key uh, teachings about the Holy Spirit here, that number one, at the instant of salvation, we are all Jew and Gentile sealed by the Holy Spirit, and that's God's seal is placed upon us. If you're a Texan, I like to refer to branding. We have God's brand of ownership on us, and that cannot be removed. And then he goes on to say that this Holy Spirit of promise, because he was promised uh, in Acts 1-6, is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. See, we are that purchased possession, that inheritance, that possession of God. And so he guarantees the uh, realization of our final redemption. And this is, again, to the praise of his, of his glory. Then we have his first prayer. So this is Paul's first prayer in Ephesians 1, 15 to 23. And notice the prayer comes out of what he has been reflecting upon because, he's, because he says, therefore, therefore, in light of what I've just gone over in terms of all these blessings that God has given us, 
in light of all of that, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, you Gentile Ephesians, your faith, you Gentile Ephesians, your love for all the saints. When I heard of that, I don't cease giving thanks. Now, what we learn for application is when we think of people, we ought to thank God for them and pray for them, what I call bullet prayers, just snap prayers real quick. Uh, that's what Paul is saying. Whenever I think about them, I pray for them. Now, Paul isn't going into a full-blown, all of the components of prayer, 15-minute prayer. It's just these quick prayers. You think of somebody, you remember somebody, all of a sudden God brings somebody to mind and you shoot up a quick prayer for them. That's the idea here. He says, I do not cease giving thanks to you, making mention of you, Gentile Ephesians, in my prayers, and then we have the that, and as we've seen in our study of these prayers, that introduce the content of the prayer, the content of our prayer that God the Father will give to you the spirit of re- re- wisdom and revelation. And I said when we went through this that the word spirit there is lowercase, and that's an erroneous interpretation because you have spirit is, is followed by two words in the genitive, which means they both relate to spirit. So let's forget about wisdom for a sentence. The spirit of revelation, If you, some people think that this refers to an attitude of revelation. We don't have an attitude of revelation. We don't reveal diddly. God reveals things. So this has to be talking about the Holy Spirit who is the one who's the source of revelation and the source of wisdom. So he says part of his prayer is that um, God, God the Holy Spirit will give us this wisdom and revelation. Now, God the Holy Spirit has already opened our eyes. That is what we see in in uh, the next verse. It's a perfect tense, so it indicates the eyes of your understanding have already been opened. When you got saved, the eyes of your understanding were opened. Your capacity to understand the Scriptures what uh, was generated at that particular time. And now what Paul is saying is in light of the fact that you now have the ability to understand the word. I'm praying that God would just continue to uh, open your eyes to understand the wisdom that God the Holy Spirit has in the scriptures and the content of the scriptures, what he has, what he has revealed. In order that, so the first that was the content, this is the purpose of that prayer, is to know three things. It's not just to be enlightened. It's not just to know a lot about the Word of God. It's to know three things. First of all, the hope of His calling, the confidence of our expectation that the end result of His calling, and then the second thing is the wealth of the glory of His inheritance as His possession. We have a glory and it involves a wealth of assets. I use the word wealth because in English, wealth is a singular, the Greek word is a singular, and uh, the word riches is a plural, so there can be many different kinds of riches, but there's only a singular wealth here in the Greek, so that singular wealth is a better way to translate it into English more consistently. Um, So we have this wealth of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So he's still talking about in the church age believers. 
The third thing is the exceeding greatness of his power, his omnipotence. And do you want to know how powerful God is? Well, he gives us an example. This is the omnipotence that he used to raise Christ from the dead. And not only that, but did he raise him from the dead, but he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. It's that resurrection power that is available to us. And as I pointed out, Uh, Last time we said to him who is able to do everything above and beyond what we can think, uh, that word for power, our ability is related to this word of power. That's, that's the verb. This is, this is the, uh, the noun, his, his might. And so we have that. That is part of the assets that God gives us, access to his omnipotence. Uh, verse 21, this elevation to God, he says, to uh, elevation of Christ to heaven, he says, uh, and he makes a point out of this because he's going to bring this up again and again all the way to the sixth chapter dealing with the, what, the power that Christ has, the authority that he has over the demons, over the fallen angels, and that here he says Christ was raised far above all principality and power and might and dominion. And those terms are all used to describe the different authority ranks that are in the heavenly, uh, the heavenly host among the angels. So this is for this age, but also in the age to come. And he'll come back to this in Ephesians 4, 8 through 10. And he put all things, that is, he, God the Father, put all things under his feet and gave him Christ to be head, that is, to be the authority over all things to the church. He is not only the head of the church, he is head of all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's only chapter 1. I can do two and three in an hour, but chapter one, I knew I would not get through that. We have to understand. Understanding this in that kind of holistic way just really does help us understand the identity that we have in Christ. This new body that is explained in chapter two is this entity that is composed of Jew and Gentile that now have peace together with between each other and are reconciled to God. But what we have in Christ is far more than any believer in the Old Testament ever had. Uh, Probably the, 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 the greatest, as Jesus said, the greatest of all of the Old Testament prophets was John the Baptist, and he is less than anyone in the church age. We have such a high position, and yet we, we, Christians as a whole act like they're living in the ghetto with a negative bank balance when the reality is our position is that we should be living in the wealthiest part of the world with the most extravagant bank balance. But we live like we don't have it because we would rather follow our sin nature all around and let it lead us than to really follow the scriptures and the leading of God, the Holy Spirit, through the scriptures. So next time we'll come back 
and finish up with the overview. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you that in your word you describe for us all that we have in Christ. And it is beyond anything that we could ask or think. We could never imagine, we'd never think of asking for these kinds of privileges, the assets, the powers, the abilities, the capacities that you've given us. But the only way to develop them is to study your word, to put it into practice in our daily lives, to implement it day in and day out, that we identify our thinking and our lives so closely with your word. And in that, we will demonstrate that the Christ-like character you develop in us exhibited in our love for others, our love for you. Father, we pray that anyone listening to our lesson today, anyone who's listening online, that if they've never trusted in Christ, that they would understand that the gospel is simple. The gospel doesn't require anything of us to do that would bring merit to ourselves. Uh, We can't uh, engage in enough ritual. We can't produce enough uh, good deeds or morality. Uh, There is nothing we can do that is going to impress you or uh, give us any kind of righteous standing before you. Jesus did it all. He paid it all on the cross. All we do is humbly accept it, trust in him and him alone. And at that instant, we're saved. We don't have to raise our hands, walk an aisle, pray a prayer. God knows the instant you trust in him, in Christ for salvation, and at that instant, you're saved, regenerated, you receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness, and you're given eternal life, and none of this can be taken away. Now, Father, we pray that you will help us to remember, reflect upon what we've studied and learned today, that Christ may be glorified and that we may press on to our spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.